0: Hi, everyone. My name is Taylor Bridgewater, co-creator of the Wellness Podcast with Nikki Hinton. I have the pleasure of introducing our guest to the podcast today, Mrs. Nina Pollard. Nina grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and attended Kent State University, where she applied science and biology with a pre-medicine concentration. Nina stayed at Kent University and earned her Master's of Public Health and Health Policy and Management. After that, Nina attended medical school, but after two years decided to pursue public health further to assist in the aid of minorities in medicine. Now, Nina attends Walden University, pursuing her doctor of public health with an interest in health literacy. Currently, Nina works as a clinical, clinical research coordinator for those with liver disease. In her spare time, Nina enjoys traveling and baking, especially with her family at their shop, Nina Lawrence Cake Pops, named after her. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Miss Nina Poet. Well, Hi, everybody.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. So we just want you to speak freely um, on the questions we're going to ask you. Pretty simple questions, but some that are kind of get the conversation going to where we may end up asking some other questions. Um, but it should be a good dialogue.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Let's get started.
0: So, the
1: first question, Nina, just as an intro, is what inspired you to pursue a career in public health? Um, So, what inspired me to pursue a career in public health? Uh, If I'm being honest, I really didn't know what public health was at first. I uh, originally went to school. I had a plan to become a physician. So, I did the traditional route, bio pre-med, and I got offered an opportunity to apply for a scholarship called the President Scholars at Kent State and it was in conjunction with when they were kind of starting up their College of Public Health and um, in applying to that and applying to that program, I got the opportunity to work with some other students who were there and we were tasked with developing a public health project um, and really looking at what public health was. And that was really learned about public health and how it really impacts healthcare what it really looks like to do research, what it really looks like to dive deeper into the non-clinical aspect of healthcare. And um, within doing that project, um, we surveyed a lot of different students on um, our campus and developed a research project. And um, ours was specifically on (coughs) the different types of um, sex education and how it impacted um, the sexual choices and sex lives of college students. And that was like really interesting to see how surveying students um, went and kind of developing a hypothesis and developing a way to really understand what we uh, explored.
2: Awesome, awesome. So
1: when you say you you didn't know a lot about
2: public health, that is true for a lot of individuals um, because pre-COVID, no one knew what public health was. In fact, I don't even think people knew public health really existed or what they really did. Um, and it wasn't until COVID hit that public health was brought to the forefront. Um, well, so what are your thoughts about that? How do you think COVID helped to bring public health to the forefront?
1: Um, COVID really helped bring public health to the forefront, just really in kind of what it does. And it's really uh, interesting because even if you ask people what public health is um, today, it re- like they still kind of have... Um, not a true definition of it or not a true definition of, um, what we do, but really looking at the popu- the health of a population, like worldwide, the health of how um, our population is doing specifically with COVID, like during the pandemic, how does COVID really affect everybody? What can we do to keep everyone safe and not from, oh, you know, it's, it's more than just the vaccines. It's how, what are healthcare systems going to do? Um, how do we regulate even the shutdown, you know, is that necessary? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, COVID really helped people kind of understand, and maybe not understand, but kind of brought forth these questions of, okay, why are we getting shut down? Or what took us so long to shut down? Or how long are we going to be shut down? Those are questions that public health Um, practitioners, public health professionals really have to answer and have to evaluate before they give an answer. And I feel like COVID was kind of maybe the first time the public as a whole um, really saw the different inner workings of what public health is. Absolutely. I mean, it had
2: been, what was it, 100 years since we had a pandemic? Yeah, it's been some time. (laughs) It's been a minute. And I I remember them saying Mm -hmm. something about it. It's been a hundred years since we've had a a real pandemic. I don't think it's quite been that long, but basically it's been, no one in our lifetime has ever seen a pandemic such as COVID. And so I think that's very important um, for people to understand
1: that we are an important sector in the community. Right. I mean, when you look at like, uh, how you said, like smallpox, that was like a huge pandemic and that was in, you know, some of that was in like the 1800s. So, like, I mean, later 1800s and everything, and then it maybe bled over into, like, you know, like, 1980s and everything was when it was really um, eradicated or, you know, around that time. So it's like, you know, that's something that's been around for such a long time. And to think, like, it was eradicated right not long ago. And right. then you have something like COVID and COVID nineteen has been around for, you know, um coronavirus is not a new virus. It's just mm-hmm. the way that it swept and impacted was essentially, you know, newer or we we saw it in a different way. But even with that, you know, our we didn't know how to handle something this wide. Right. And now they're looking at public health mm-hmm. officials or people who deal with how to deal with, you know, how to regulate that different life.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So kind of on that topic of um, the pandemic coming and changing up the world as we know it, what are some of the challenges that you face in your work, Nina, um, with working with patients with liver disease or just overall? Because I know your interest is to aid in minorities in medicine, so what challenges do you face
1: um, so some of the challenges I face uh, really is, for one, people really understanding what the liver disease is that we're studying. So those who have um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or hepatitis, it's really just um, liver disease uh, that can lead to just stiffness and fibrosis of your liver, eventually potentially leading to cirrhosis of the liver, but it's not caused by excessive alcohol consumption. It's not caused by the uh, hepatitis virus or anything of that nature, it's really caused by, we're learning that it's <clears throat> caused by um, metabolic or metabolic disorders, and those include diabetes, high blood pressure, <clears throat> high cholesterol, um, high triglycerides, obesity, or having like a larger um, waist circumference. I think one of the challenges that we face is really getting people to understand what non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is and what are the um contributors of it and how to really combat it because right now there's really no cure for it it's really just diet and exercise mm-hmm. it's interesting especially working or looking at minority patients just telling somebody oh yeah just eat healthy lose weight that's not easy and sometimes you know depending on where you live that's not easy if you don't live in a neighborhood that you feel fuck you don't live in a neighborhood that maybe has access to um, a gym that's close to you you don't what if you live in a food desert that's an area that doesn't have a direct access to fresh produce so how do you really lose weight and eat healthy when sometimes that's not that simple and then you have a doctor telling you you have fatty liver and that's it and just diet and eat Eat exercise and then we have people who come, you know, 10 years ago, I had fatty liver and they just told me to eat better. <laughs> they really didn't make a big deal. About it. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the challenges too, is really getting people to understand what it is and really how.
0: Yes, because that's one of my next questions too was, I think one part of it or a big part of it is to break it down layman's term, where people understand exactly what we're trying to tell them. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people usually don't find out or are not diagnosed until later on in their lifetime. So it's kind of rewiring their brain to change the way that they ate or their exercise routines for the last, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, however long or however old that um, person may be. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one of my next questions, too, is like, what do you think is the most successful way or what method has helped you in engaging and educating your patients um, about their health issues and to promote healthy behaviors that they can maintain?
1: Um, I think really getting into clinical research has helped. And it's mainly because I have more time. I can you know, like we a lot, we're given more time to talk to the individuals who come in with us. Um, I work directly with a wonderful nurse practitioner, wonderful doctors who um, are there to help me answer any questions. You know, I am by a physician, so um, while I can explain certain things, one of the things that I have a great team that um, when they have questions that are beyond my scope of knowledge, um, I don't have to send a message or they don't have to like, you know, send a message. I can just say, okay, yeah, I'm gonna reach out to our nurse practitioner, our doctor who is right here to help And they can get kind of answers right away. And I think that's one of the greatest things I've loved about working in clinical research or working in research period, is that I have more time to really talk to the individuals who come in to seek our help. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there are some days where I may only have two individuals so if somebody has questions, I can easily spend 15, 20 minutes talking to them or, you know, I can say, hey, let me go get our nurse practitioner. She can come in and talk to them. So I think that's been one of the best ways to help educate individuals is by having the time to talk. And I know that that's not always the case, especially in healthcare. It's not mm-hmm. common for you to have that time. So I don't take that for granted. But that's also And I know we'll probably get into this too, but that's also why my interest is health literacy because um, that's a big part of sometimes why people don't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, I think that's huge. I always said so Um, prior to me coming into this side of medicine, I worked in dentistry and a huge thing I noticed with a lot of patients that I spoke with as a treatment coordinator was that patients like seem to feel more comfortable speaking to other individuals that are similar to them, that they feel they can relate to, or simply that's just not the doctor that's going to be treating them or that's diagnosing them. I don't know if this, you know, they kind of feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. They just don't know the right way to express their emotions or their feelings or questions. And knowing that the doctor's time is very limited, I think they just have a hard time of trying to process their information that they just received, and then get any questions that they may have about it. So I think it's great um, that coordinators are able to sit in with them. I think you guys play a vital role. So I think Mm -hmm. they open up a lot more and Mm -hmm. they give you guys way more information. And that's kind of what keeps everything going, It's where their advocates seriously and those kind of aspects. They have a direct contact that they know can answer, that they know they can rely on. They can text you guys, email. Mm -hmm. it's not like they have to go through hoops trying to get you know a response so I think that is Mm a huge part yeah I
1: I agree and you know by no means does it um mean that you know like we are people that they go to instead of going to a physician or um their practitioner I always tell my patients I'm like you know I'm not your doctor so Mm -hmm. I will (laughs) um relay this information if they have concerns that like you know like I said are beyond my scope of knowledge um you know like oh well i'm gonna just tell you what i think like no i make sure that you know i do pass that along to you know our um, practitioners who work with us our physicians that are working directly with them but i agree with you that like you know having that time with the coordinator first who is like explaining specifically in research explaining what it is that we're doing explaining exactly what it is why we're doing this research and i think that's a big part of it is explaining the why You know, um, and I think that's a big thing, especially with a lot of minority patients. You know, you just go in, they tell you this is what we got to do, and then um, they kind of give you a brief overview of maybe the why, but you don't really understand exactly what's going on. So being able to be that kind of first line of contact to explain the why, um, or then asking "So what exactly is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Like, I don't drink, so, you know how did I get liver disease Mm -hmm. and be able to kind of you know like give them a basic before they talk to the doctor um who's going to give them that medical knowledge that they need to hear Mm you know I think that's a big um, part of you know research and why we do what we do and kind of what helps our patients really trust us to um ultimately say hey I want to be part of this research project Right. So what are some of the
2: challenges that you face um, in recruiting minority participants for your studies? Because I know with me, it's a struggle. We we don't have many minorities that can even afford to come to the hospital. Um, and so they, mm-hmm. we, we, don't, we don't have a lot of interaction with them. And the few that we do, they won't participate, even though someone that they can identify with who looks like them, acts like them, talks like them, but they still are hesitant to participate in the studies. So, what, what are what besides that? What other challenges have you with that?
1: I think it's really just reaching them, honestly. So, um, you know, you. I think it also depends on the area in which you work. So, if you work in an area that doesn't have um, a high minority population, that in itself is hard to reach them because they're not there. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's only so far that your reach can go um, in some capacity. But even with that, it's really, um, it's the barrier of trust. So, right. you know, everybody always brings up the Tuskegee um, mm-hmm. uh, experiment. Yeah. And there have been so many more since then that aren't even as long ago as that. But right. That's the one that a lot of minorities, or almost all minorities, like you're not about to experiment on me like they mm-hmm. did on those men. So it's really even breaking down that um, that mistrust of the healthcare system and the simple fact that it's not even just Tuskegee. Like minorities, even when you look at minority women, at the rate of maternal mortality rates for African American women, it's the mistrust of the healthcare system. Period. Because we may not think that healthcare practitioners are going to believe what we say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that also is a big problem or a big barrier is, you know, getting minorities to even want to talk to you. Sometimes even if you look like them or not, you know, Mm -hmm. getting them to want to talk to you and open up about something that they've been told they have and just weren't given any um, guidance on. So I think the two biggest barriers that I face are just, you know, location. Um, And it's not in a bad way. It's not, you know, that minorities can't live where I work or anything. It's just that, you know, unfortunately where I work, it's not a place that's heavily populated with minorities. Mm -hmm. Um, And even that, you know, they just may not know that we are there. That's true, that's true. But you know, um,
2: for me, I was um, I, I had elevated liver at one mm-hmm. point, but I also was almost 300 pounds too, and my doctor automatically contributed that to alcohol. Never did wow. he mention to me anything about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and it wasn't until I started working in transplant that I even learned about that. And I lost the weight, and, and enzymes went back to normal. So I think mm-hmm. too, doctors play a huge role in that because I, I I often wonder if they are even aware of none of these if they don't if they don't specialize in it.
1: hmm Yeah, and it's it's hard to know about something if you you know you don't specialize because uh, I mean going through medical school you know you learn everything what you specialize in is what you you know dig deeper into Mm -hmm. and uh i think that even with the notion of you know it's the stereotypes and it's not just with minorities individuals it's with every every race ethnicity has their own stereotypes but you know specifically with minorities it's hard to break out of those sometimes and even what you're taught in medicine you know it they did a um A study that showed that a lot of medical students think that African Americans have a higher pain tolerance because it's an actual like medical or genetic difference. And I'm like, "Mm, no, that's not it. (laughs) So that that even contributes to the maternal mortality rate and how, you know, you have women who are, you have black women who are saying, you know, I'm in pain, something doesn't feel right. And they're like, oh, that's just normal. You you just gave birth. Like, no, I'm telling you, I don't feel right. Right. So, um, you know, you know, not always knowing about going back to the non-alcoholic fatty liver, not always knowing about that, or thinking because you have, like you said, you have elevated liver enzymes. Okay, so it must be because you drink, mm-hmm. but there are things that that contribute to that even more. And I think, unfortunately, because you know, Nash and NAFLD are becoming more in the limelight of liver issues people are kind of looking at it more but maybe 20 years ago it wasn't even that doctors just didn't look at it they just really just didn't know about it because right. even today they really don't know what causes it they know what are contributors but right. we can't say that we know exactly that if you're overweight you're gonna have this or if right. you have diabetes you're gonna have I have some patients who aren't necessarily overweight and still have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right, right.
0: Interesting. I also think it's very interesting, kind of going back with the um, struggle with recruitment was, I don't know, I'm pretty sure a lot of people probably touched bases on this, but it is just so interesting to me how we struggle with recruitment and the fear of unknown that patients may have for them signing up to do trials. But with COVID, and when the vaccine came out, it, I mean, there was still a handful of people that were very nervous um, about getting the vaccine, you know, very questionable. But a lot of people ran and got that vaccine. They got both doses, <laughs> didn't ask questions. You know, people didn't question it that much. They was just told, like, everyone, I think, was just so afraid that they exactly. were like, let That's me just it get it. Mm-hmm. So, people want to be outside their mind. Mm -hmm. It is just, it's kind of very interesting to me because I'm like, when you're told that you have a potential disease that could be life threatening, you know, we kind of question it. Or when we're telling you, like, I'm not trying to give you a vaccine, I'm not trying to give you any medicine, I'm telling you to change your diet and to Mm -hmm. work out. And, you know, people really struggle with that versus and I'm telling you I'm about to give you this vaccine and I can't tell you what all's gonna happen because it's our first time using it but
2: (laughs) we're gonna do it right
0: yeah I try to I sometimes used to bring that up to some people not um in relation to clinical trials at all but just kind of reframing their train of thought and their thinking Mm -hmm. um because there's a lot of things that you have done that you didn't know what the outcome was going to be. You didn't know what it was going to be. You didn't know what you were putting into your body, but you did it. Mm-hmm. Wow. I always bring that up. And I tell people too, you know, when you read the labels of food and I'm like, do you know what that is? Do we know how to sell <laughs> And I'm like, no, we don't. But we're doing it because that's just always what we've had. So mm-hmm. I think just the biggest part of everything is just, like you said, the lack of trust. And also just the education piece of informing people what it is and then kind of exposing them to to the reality of Mm -hmm. we don't know. There's a lot of things in this world that we're ingesting Mm -hmm. that we do not know. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, we do tell our patients, you know, that Mm -hmm. we have seen that diet and exercise does work. So we're not telling you, all right, we're just going to give you this pill. And it's a magic pill. No, mm-hmm. you know, we do, we do want you to do that. You know, I, I can personally say, you know, like I've been on a journey to be healthier, and one thing that I wish I would have done. So we do fibro scans, and it's a way for us to see kind of, you know, the content of fat within the liver. It's very similar to an ultrasound. So we first see the content of fat in the liver, and then gives you kind of an idea. Of the process. Or soaring in the level of that. <clears throat> so, mm-hmm. since I've been in my job, I've lost 40 pounds. And oh, um, I, think, I wish that I would have kind of um, got a fiber first started and then got one now to see the difference because, you know, mm-hmm. we have patients come in and say, oh, yeah, you know, we ask a lot of our patients have lost weight, you know, in the past six months. And the ones who have lost about 20 pounds or I've lost this or I've lost that. So, oh. we do see a difference.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we know the diet and exercise work, but we're also like, you know, we know that that's not easy,
0: right? And right. That's the problem. And, you it's know, not like, quick.
1: right. Mm-hmm. Solution exactly. It's not a quick fix. You can't just wake up one day and say, "I'm gonna." In the next two months, and I mean, if you do, there are some other things there. But, right, then you have you some know, other problems it, Exactly <laughs> Right, but it's like, you know, it's just not a quick fix And we know that sometimes mm-hmm. it's not easy For people to diet to- You are immobile But what if, you know, you can't really High intensity workouts? so we're like, okay, we'll go walking mm-hmm. What if people have arthritis Or have things that make walking hard for them So that's why we are doing these clinical trials To really see if there are a way to help People that can't always do it with diet and exercise, or can't always do it. They might have, we felt, I thought, the diet is great. They're like, I'm allergic to fish. I was like, mm, well, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that's an yeah. issue. Yeah. Right. Because right, There's a lot exactly. of fish in that diet. <laughs> so, you know, it, and that's why I really do like research because it's not trying to find a quick fix. And I know everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people do have concerns about, you know, ingesting pharmaceutical products, ingesting medicine, mm-hmm. which is also why, you know, like, we're very upfront. I really explain, like, this is what it does in your body. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not just telling you, hey, we're giving you this trial medication. I'm like, okay, so this is what it does in your body. This is what the does. This is what this medication is going to do. Mm-hmm. Does this. And I also get the opportunity to explain, you know, like, different like what actually what clinical trials actually are and I think that's another Mm -hmm. thing not just explaining what's going to happen to their body but explaining like what clinical and what's the purpose of them sometimes help people helps people become a little more comfortable too Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. that's one thing I was going to say Nina just as you were speaking if you could explain what a clinical trial is because maybe there's some listeners that never heard of Um, clinical trials if they're younger or just maybe there's some that are just not educated on what clinical trials are, the purpose behind them, the benefits, the risk, any of that.
1: Yeah, okay. So um, you know, with clinical trials getting into, if you have, you know, with the FDA or the um, Food and Drug Administration, really if we're going to put something on the market for you to take then it has to be and that is pretty much the purpose of clinical trials is to test something so that we know that it's safe so it's not without trial and error it's not without you know a little bit of fear of kind of what's going to happen <laughs> um with it. but there are different phases of clinical trials too so you know there can be a phase one trial and the purpose of that is like safety and dosage so it's really just um, taking a small group of like healthy volunteers um, or sometimes people with the disease and saying, okay, is it safe? What dosages can we use? You know, like, and it's a small amount. And then if you get a phase two trial, that's kind of upping a little bit, um, upping the number of individuals in the trial, but that one lasts longer. So the first phase is a few months. All right, let's see if we give you this dose. Hi. Um, but the phase two is really just like the efficacy of it and the side effects. So what are the side effects of this drug over time? And that phase can last, you know, a couple months up to a couple years. And then you move on to the phase three. Once again, every time you move on to a different phase, you add more people in. So you can get a, the more people you have, the better it is with your results. So we get to a phase three, it's really just like, you know that one can last up to one to four years and it's really just monitoring um, the drug. Are there any adverse effects, not just side effects, are there any adverse effects that is going on in your body? Does it affect different body systems that we didn't think of? And then um, the last portion is like a phase four trial, really again, safety and efficacy. So each trial is really about safety and how effective is this drug and treating what we want it. But in each trial, kind of each phase kind of lasts a little bit longer. And in each phase, they're targeting, like I said, safety, but how much should we give somebody? What are the side effects? And they, they do it with healthy individuals and individuals who have the disease and what you're trying to basically treat. So, you know, clinical trials isn't, you know, of course, unfortunately it is giving a patient something that they may not know about and we're studying, but it's not just, we're gonna take, you know, 7,000 people and give them this drug. It really starts off very small. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we you're monitored the whole time. <laughs> so right. it's, yeah, and it can be scary. I mean, even me explaining that, I'm like, I'm like, man. How do I explain this? That people feel like they don't, like they wouldn't want to do it. You know, like I said, fear.
2: What I I tell—I have one um, Wednesday or Thursday that I do that asked me, "Well, how do I know I'm going to get the drug?" I said, "Well, you don't," and that's the thing. I Mm -hmm. said, "But here's the 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 best part of being a part of a clinical trial is that you are monitored." on a much more regular basis than you would be just doing standard of care. So we'll see you more right. more often than we would normally see you with standard of care. So if anything is off, right then. And so mm-hmm. that made him feel a lot better about participating in the trial. And his other question was, um, will I see an immediate effect? I said, you may and you may not. It depends on the drug or not. The other part of it is clinical trials are not necessarily designed to help the people that participate in it, even though they may get a vent. It's really in the long run once the study has completed. So you may be helping your future children, grandchildren, you know. And so that part he, he really wanted to to focus on because his thing is I don't want my disease to get worse. It was my job to 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 um, um know that hey your disease if it does start to progress we're going to be on top of it because we're monitoring you much more mm-hmm. so I think that plays a role and also
1: too with, with explaining it to to your patients what a clinical trial is right and that does um, really help because well how do I know which one if I'm going to get the placebo or if I'm going to get you know mm-hmm. the actual study medication so it's like it's first getting over the hump of getting somebody to even want to take a study medication <laughs> exactly. and then when you get oh, yeah I'll do it great then they are like so how do I know if I'm getting and like you said how long to take in effect and you know that this whole conversation about what clinical trials are what the different phases do whether you get the medication or not is one of the biggest Hurdles in clinical trials, Mm. because you know I never really thought about it before working in research and becoming a um, study coordinator to really explain to somebody what it does (laughs) and get it trust you, and that takes more than just clinical knowledge. That takes that bedside manner. That takes you know good Mm -hmm. communication skills to really listen to somebody's concerns. And be okay with saying, you know what? I don't know how this is gonna affect you, but right. like you said, like we're gonna be monitoring. You're gonna be there the whole time. You're gonna come in, you know, once a month, once every other week, depending on type of study. You know, we're gonna call you. We're gonna mm-hmm. do blood work every time you come in. If anything goes right. with that blood work, we're gonna tell you. So you know, that makes me comfortable, but. I won't lie sometimes I do sit there and I'm thinking Man, how do I better explain this to make people feel more comfortable especially when I have somebody come in who looks like me as a minority mm-hmm. um, how do mm-hmm. I make them feel more comfortable when I'm telling them you know I don't always know what happened or I'm going over mm-hmm. the side effects and I'm seeing people's face like so these are this is these are the effects that could possibly happen to me and I'm like well Yes. <laughs> and how do I make them feel what? more comfortable?
2: You you have to say, what I say to my patients is these side effects are based on the Caucasian population mostly because those are the mm-hmm. ones who mostly participate. So we can't honestly say what it's going to do to you. These are the possibilities. Our, our genetic makeup is totally different. So this is why it's so important for us to participate in clinical trials, because we don't know what it will actually do to us. And so then they're like, oh, okay. I see now some of them and some of them are like, I don't care, I'm not participating in it. And I totally get it, totally, right. totally get it. But I also want them to understand that if you don't, then we'll never know. We have to get right. over this top this of and all these other studies that were done wrong. I, I tell them all the time, we have laws in place, rules that we have to adhere to. If we don't, mm-hmm. we are penalized very stiffly, you know, and yeah. some of them, some of them agree to it, some of them don't. If you if we could just reach one and then that one tells another, and that one that they told tells another, it's just reaching one that we can really get them to start to break down that bridge and then we can rebuild right
0: I I agree with
2: that
1: Uh,
0: it's people, I mean, because I didn't know prior to working into research, all that went in behind mm-hmm. it. So I'm like, you know, looking at you guys' protocols, I'm like, you know, this is not like somebody woke up one day and was yeah. like, let's create this drug and get right. it going. <laughs> right. Like, no. All the science and research mm-hmm. and effort and work put in behind all of this. And just, you know, you guys have talked about getting the patients, they even agree to be in the trial mm-hmm. and then them seeing the uh, inclusion criteria. Like, there's right. just so mm-hmm. That are in place for you guys to make sure that we're protecting the patient. So I think, it's right. a, you know, just the background behind it is so extensive to where yep. we're really at the forefront. Like you said, you said it a lot, meaning like mm-hmm. their safety is number one, mm-hmm. and that truly is number one. Yeah. Like, regardless whether or not this drug works out, we really care to make sure that <laughs> right. you're okay first. Right. And we're exactly. hoping while you're on the trial that you get the benefits of this drug that mm-hmm. it does mm-hmm. what we're anticipating it to do.
2: But you also have to give right. the patient some accountability too. And I and I tell them that. I say, Hey, if this is what we know it could possibly do, mm-hmm. but it's up to you to say, hey, Nikki, I know you said this. Something very strange happened to me the other day. If you don't do your part, I can't help you. I can only go by what you tell me. So you give them some accountability in participating in the trial as well. And so that makes them feel more involved. And so therefore, they're going to tend to be a little more compliant. Because I've had some patients that when you don't give them an accountability portion, they're not compliant at all because they don't feel like they have to be. But when they know right. that they are responsible for letting you know, if yesterday I was fine, today I started itchy, mm-hmm. men are apt to do what they're supposed to do.
1: Right. And then, you know, when you tell us what's going on, we can, The I know I said a lot about safety, but that really is the goal of all of this. It's not just, you know, to promote putting this drug on the market and make all this money trust me I don't make nothing from you (laughs) participating in this trial extra it's not I don't get a bonus like okay Mm -hmm. if you enroll 12 people in this trial right right (laughs) absolutely not um but it's all about safety and Mm -hmm. you know one thing I want to also mention is you know you mentioned the inclusion criteria like it's it's also changes, not like the other trials where they're saying we need people to come sign up you sign up and then they just give you a shot and tell you to go home mm-hmm. no like our whole process is so extensive
0: you mm-hmm. come in
1: we go through the entire informed consent and that mm-hmm. informed consent has everything in it these things are like 15 to 30 pages long Yep. We go through that with you. And then we go from least invasive to most invasive. So I just ask you about your medical history. And if your medical history excludes you, we don't even go any further. Exactly. Okay. And then so mm-hmm. much. We do your medical history, your medication, you know, we you, you do blood work. And if anything excludes you, we do that. And screening period can last anywhere from, you know, 14 weeks. So, exactly. yeah. It, not before we can even let somebody start Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's the thing you know we don't want you to just you know you can't just come in and say okay when do I get the drug absolutely not you know and it Mm -hmm. is you know and that also lets us know is whatever we are testing going to not just be safe for you but whoever takes it once it does get approved is it Mm going to be safe
0: right yeah, right. that's my biggest thing. So I'm like, you know, the biggest hurdles getting a patient to want to participate. But that's mm-hmm. only part one for you guys. I'm uh-huh. like, that's the biggest hurdle for the patient. But that is like the first of many for you mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it goes on to so much more. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I think that was a good conversation. So glad that you joined us. We are yes. definitely gonna do this again. We have a <laughs> I lot would love to talk about. We're already forty minutes in, and I mean, I know we can talk about this for hours. I, yes, we can definitely just for hours. Definitely next.
2: Absolutely.
0: I thank you. I for love time with us. I thank you for talking to us, kind of letting us in on your scope, um, and your career, and I'm. Proud of you, um, with being a minority that's showing up for us and pursuing your doctorates. You and Nikki, we need more doctors of our yes. race, our mm-hmm, ethnicity, mm-hmm. of female doctors. Um, so I'm just so glad to be able to speak with you and to work with Nikki on a regular basis. And I can. Cannot-
1: yes, absolutely. I just, I just want to say quickly how I, how I met Nikki. It was very. Interesting. We both were, uh, at a conference for our jobs and sitting next to each other. And mm-hmm. somehow we just started talking about, you know, what we do. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm getting my, um, doctor of public health. And she was like, oh, me too. Where do you go? And I'm like, I go to Walden. She was like, me too. And realized that we are both in the exact same program, just yeah. a quarter apart. And, um, that just birthed this, you know, whole, like, budding working relationship, friendship, that's just um, us looking out for each other. So I'm really excited to see where we both go in this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're definitely going to do some Mm -hmm. collaboration. Um,
2: I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I enjoyed our conversation so much so that I was determined to stay in contact with you. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm so glad you you took the time out of your busy Sunday, because I know Sunday is wind down and get ready for that long week ahead, um, yep. but I'm glad that you took the time out to speak with us. This is definitely something that Taylor and I really want to see go forward and just make really big. We really want to take it all the way. Mm-hmm. So flourish. Yes, yes. We definitely, definitely want to see it. Um Um, grow, grow. So we we have a lot of people um, lined up. Heather, be a guest again on one
1: of our episodes. Oh, I'm looking forward to it.